The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, uh, with me and open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel uh, today. I know it took longer than expected, <laughs> as uh, I can tell by some of your reactions, but uh, welcome, welcome back to Daniel. Uh, Daniel has been waiting here patiently, and so have many of you, but we're finally here. Uh, we can take that frown and turn it upside down in our notes, because we are back. Uh, but since we've been away from Daniel for so long... It will be helpful to do a little bit of review uh, so we can get our our bearings again. So let's pull back for a moment and remind ourselves about the overall theme of the book of Daniel. This is going to be a a review, Uh, maybe seems more like a classroom instead of a pulpit, but uh, uh, we're going to jump in. What is the book of Daniel all about? If if I were to summarize the book of, of Daniel, I would simply do it by saying that the book of Daniel is a reminder that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's the summary statement. And if you're, you're looking for a key verse for the entire book, uh, you could use Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, which says, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, that's the key statement for the entire book of Daniel. And it's repeated at least three more times if you take a look at Daniel chapter 4 and verse 25. It speaks about how seven periods of time will pass over Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of the verse until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Over in verse 32, says the same thing at the end of the verse, that these times would pass over him until he recognizes that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And if you look at over at uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, it speaks about the same thing at the end of the, the verse, that, that he would recognize that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. It's repeated over and over again in the book of Daniel. And the same thing is said in various ways. In chapter 2 and verse 21, it's God who changes the times and epics. He removes kings. He establishes kings. Chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who's, who's going to call God to give an account to them? You know, God, explain yourself. You know, and God doesn't have to explain himself to anybody. Remember, Job tried that and it didn't work out so well. No, no, Job, you, you tell me something. You know, don't, don't come to me to give you an account. Why don't you give me an account? It doesn't work so well. God is the one who's over all. And throughout the book of Daniel, God is raising people up, taking them down, 91 times in the book of of Daniel, there's some explicit mention of God taking someone down or setting someone up. Incredible to think about. 
Just, just a couple of these. The Lord is set to raise up, to give over, to reestablish, to set over, to magnify, to prosper, to raise again, to bestow, to set up, to grant, to lift, to make king, to cause to rule. But God is also said to put to an end, to remove, to take away, to crush, to destroy, to annihilate, to completely destroy, to depose, to cause to fall, to hurl, to trample, to shatter, to break, to slay. This is the work of our God. And the, and the world's rulers are merely the, the chess pieces that God moves across the board of the earth, and they cannot overpower his ultimate plan for mankind. The invisible hand of God is above all powers, above all kings. He's moving the rulers across the board, and he will topple them over when he sees fit. And here's the difficult truth that many of us don't like to embrace, but it's true, it's biblical, that God will even raise up evil, tyrannical, dictatorial leaders in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. That's tough. That's tough. And that's what we've seen demonstrated in the first six chapters of the book of of Daniel, haven't we? In chapter one, if you want to flip back there, we learn in chapter one that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But, but, but that's not all that it says. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who, who's behind all of this? It says the Lord is. The Lord's hand was in this. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by a dream. And what was the interpretation of the dream? Look at chapter 2 and verse 44. Chapter 2 and verse 44. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Yes, God's going to set up a kingdom, but guess who's also responsible for all the other kingdoms that came before? It's the same God. Same God. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a, a golden image to honor himself. Gives a command for all peoples, nations, men of every language to bow down before this image or face the fiery furnace. When God turns his furnace into a, a playground, God, God is in charge. God is in charge of even evil kings. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar recounts his own personal testimony and becomes a beast of a king. Foolishly says, this is not, this is not Babylon the Great that I've uh, built for myself. It's a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty. And while the words are still in his mouth, the Lord takes him down. You, you recognize that I'm the one who sets you up. It doesn't work out well when people don't recognize that God is in charge. Chapter 5, we find out that Belshazzar came to power. Over in uh, verse 26, lets us know that he found an inscription on the wall, which is written out, many, many, tekel, uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And who's responsible for all of this? This is God behind every single action here. God is in charge of the rulers. It's his sovereign dominion, the almighty God over the nations. That's, that's the summary. 
And it's at this point that we cross over into to chapter 7. The great theme continues over into chapter 7. And just to prepare you as we turn there into chapter 7, this is considered to be one of the most important chapters in the book of Daniel. And one of the most significant chapters in biblical prophecy. One commentator says, as interpreted by conservative expositors, the vision of Daniel 7 provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And there's no doubt that Daniel 7 is an extremely significant portion of Scripture, and that's even backed up by its placement within the book of Daniel, the significance of Daniel chapter 7. This is the final chapter of the first section of the book. If you remember, Daniel chapters 2 through 7 were all written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Uh, Aramaic would have been the trade language of the day, would have been intended to reach a, a broader audience. Daniel 7 is the last chapter written in Aramaic. That's significant. Daniel 7 is also the final section of a a chiasm or a parallel structure from chapters 2 to 7. If you remember our introduction to the book of Daniel, Daniel's chapter 2 and 7 belong together. Uh, They speak about the the four kingdoms that are going to be destroyed. Chapters 3 and 6 go together. They both talk about faithfulness, the faithfulness of God's servants in the midst of uh, Gentile domination. And then chapters 4 and 5 also go together. They talk about the humbling of world rulers under the most high God. And chapter 7 is the last chapter in that section, in that structure. So it's significant. But Daniel 7 is also the, the first chapter in the final section. So it's, it's the final chapter in the first section and the first chapter in the final section. Daniel 7 is the first of four visions given directly to Daniel. Prior to this point, the visions were all given to the, the kings. Now they're given to Daniel. And Daniel's going to have these four visions. Also, Daniel 7 makes a, a shift from speaking about the historical account to the prophetic picture. Prior to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's been concerned with telling the, the history of Babylon to Medo-Persia. But now the focus is strictly on the prophecies. So Daniel even moves back in time, as we'll find in a little bit, to make sure that he's picking up the prophecies and putting them all together. He's grouping them all together. The first year of Belshazzar in uh, chapter 7 mentions that, that uh, Daniel received this uh, vision in the first year of Belshazzar, king of of Babylon. But chapter 6 spoke about the the, the year that Darius was serving as king. So, So what Daniel actually does is he leaps over Darius and goes back to Belshazzar again, going out of order in order to pair all of these visions together. It's significant that Daniel is, is doing this. He's, he's placing all these visions together because it's the first in a series. It's the first in a series. So Daniel's like a, Daniel 7 is like a bridge. It ends one section. It begins the next. It's a turning point. It's a pivotal chapter in the book of Daniel. So that's the, the summary, the significance. But what about the setting? What about the setting? Look at Chapter 7 again, look at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. What's so important about the first year of Belshazzar? If you remember, Belshazzar was the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 long years. And even though Nebuchadnezzar was a Gentile king, he still had a place for Daniel and his friends. 
Daniel and his friends entered the king's personal service. Remember that back in chapter 1. Chapter 2, after uh, Daniel revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's actually placed in a position of prominence. Uh, Look back at uh, chapter 2 and verse 48. Chapter 2 and verse 48. It says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. He's the second most powerful man in the nation. He's, he's, he's receiving these, these great honors, promotions. In chapter 3, after uh, uh, the, the fiery furnace, there's this decree that was made that, that nobody would say anything offensive about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And towards the end of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, after God humbles him, at the end of that time, if you look back in chapter 4, what happens here? Chapter 4, look at verse 34. It says, at the end, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is who Daniel and his friends had for a king by the end of his reign. This man had had converted, he had changed, he was transformed. And they could have easily thought like the disciples of Luke 19 and 11 that the kingdom was going to appear immediately. I mean, we've, we've got an ally at the highest level of government. This guy is blessing God now. He, he's a friend to us. He's promoting us. He's inviting us in. He wants our counsel. And even though Nebuchadnezzar was a Gentile king, there was a place for the worshipers of the true God in Babylon. Daniel's friends were elevated. Daniel himself was elevated to the second highest position. And by the end of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar even worshiped the true God. I mean, it it can't get any better than this. I mean, Daniel has to be encouraged by this. Things are looking up in Babylon. You know, changes around the corner. But in the first year of Belshazzar, all of that is gone. It's like all the progress that had been made was completely erased. It's all in the past. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562. After 43 years on the throne, he was followed by the reigns of three kings who died shortly after taking the throne. Two two of them were assassinated. And now Belshazzar comes to power and he is an evil and a wicked king who even mocks the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is praising and blessing the God of heaven. And here comes Belshazzar and he's mocking the God of heaven, taking the vessels that were used in the temple for common use for a drunken party. And by this time, Daniel is an unknown. If you remember when we were looking at Daniel chapter five, the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, has to introduce Belshazzar to Daniel. Why? Because nobody knows him. He goes from being the second highest in the kingdom to a a person that somebody has to remind you about. Let me introduce you to Daniel. What are you talking about? This was the second highest official in your land. And now he's some has-been. He's forgotten. Chapter 5, verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. But of course, you wouldn't know that. 
That was the year 539 when Babylon fell, when Daniel has to be reintroduced. Between 539 and 562 when Nebuchadnezzar died, that would have been 23 years that Daniel was sitting on the shelf. 23 years. Packed away, placed in storage. By the time Belshazzar comes in, he's about 70 years old. Belshazzar has no place for Daniel, no place for his friends. And Israel at this time could have been wondering, like, has God rejected us? (laughs) You know, there's no working together for a better tomorrow. No moral majority lobbying in Babylon. No invitations to the Babylonian White House. They didn't care about the evangelical vote. But in these same years when there was silence from Babylon, there was communication from heaven. And Daniel reminds us there's a God who doesn't need an invitation to reign over us, and he rules in the midst of the storm. Take a look at uh, Daniel chapter 7. We'll start at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels with, were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words from which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Let's uh, bow our heads just for a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. Now, Father, we pray that you would open it up to us. My Lord, there are uh, many things, Lord, that are revealed here. Important things, Lord, for us to understand. Significant truths, oh Lord, that we need to apply to our lives. And now, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to, to wade through the details. And now, Father, that you would be glorified in it. Now, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're just going to focus on the big picture, okay? <laughs> we're just going to focus on the big picture. Next week, we'll return to fill in some of the details. But if you're, you're looking for the, the big picture, an overview of chapter 7, it's in the last two verses that we just read. Verses 17 and 18. Keep this in mind as you're reading through the chapter. These great beasts which are four number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Before we start counting heads and counting horns, we need to take a look at the full picture, all right? This is about four kings or kingdoms and how the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. That's the big story and that's exciting. And uh, from beginning to end, all of this is orchestrated by the divine hand. Look at verse, verse 2. It says, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What, what was it that stirred up the great sea? It was the winds of heaven, and the winds clearly come from God. Back in Jeremiah 49 and verse 36, God says to Jeremiah, I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven and will scatter them to all these winds. The the, the four winds come from God. It was God that stirred up the great sea and brought out these great beasts. It's heaven that lifts up the lion and causes him to stand in verse four. It's heaven that tells the bear to devour much meat. It's it's heaven that gives dominion to the leopard. It's, It's heaven that allowed the fourth beast to devour and crush and trample with its feet. Heaven is ruling in the midst of this. And I pray that's an encouragement to your hearts because we can become so consumed with the tumultuous waves all around us and what beasts are coming out of the abyss. We can become consumed with that. You know, who's coming into power next? What, What laws are being passed? What freedoms are being taken away? Who's coming after our kids? How crazy is this nation going to get? And believe me, it's crazy. There's not going to be any place for Christians to find a refuge. Eventually, there's going to be no protection in the Constitution, no matter what it says. And this is just the world we live in. We're surrounded by this great tumultuous sea. And verse 2 says, the four winds of heaven were stirring up that sea. A phrase often used for the Mediterranean, the great sea. But what was that a picture of, this great sea? What was the great sea a picture of? The the sea is often used in Scripture to speak about the nations. Isaiah 17, verse 12 says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. Isaiah 57, verse 20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. In Revelation 17, which is, a great parallel to the book of Daniel. Verse 15, it says, He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlots sit are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It's the sea of humanity. It's the world we live in. And the world we live in is a turbulent place to navigate. 
The word for stirring up is literally bursting forth. The sea is bursting forth, turbulent, tumultuous, terrifying, and we don't know where the next wave is going to hit us from. You know, is it going to be from the classroom? Is it going to be from my workplace? Is it going to be from my family? Where is this going to hit me from next? This is the world that we live in, the sea of depraved humanity, and it comes in the shape now of these four beasts that come out of this tumultuous sea. And we don't have to wonder what the beasts represent. We're already told that they're four kings, which stand for four empires or kingdoms. And we've already been introduced to these same four kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2. Again, remember chapter 2 and chapter 7 go together. But we get a very different perspective about these kingdoms in chapter 2 and chapter 7. If you remember back in chapter 2, if you want to flip back there, in chapter 2 when we're given a, a picture of these four nations, look at, look at, what, look at how they're, they're described in the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Look at verse 31, chapter 2. It says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, the statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of, of clay. As Nebuchadnezzar looks up at this statue the, that represent the four empires, as he looks up, He sees these nations as extraordinary, splendor, appearance is awesome. That's from man's perspective. But from heaven's perspective, looking down upon these same kingdoms, they're ravenous beasts coming up out of the abyss. And let's be honest, there's not a nation that's not guilty of it. We're we're, we're nations of beasts. Our history is filled with atrocities. And what country do you know of that's never been involved in some kind of warfare to gain power and control? That, that's, that's just the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. There have been wars between nations, between peoples, between tribes, between tongues, between families that can be traced all the way back to Cain and Abel. I mean, this is just the life that we live. And men behave more like beasts in order to gain power than not. And then they behave like beasts in order to keep their power. And as Belshazzar comes into power, Daniel is reminded, don't forget that you live in a nation of beasts. Don't, rem- don't, don't forget that that's, that's where you live. This is the, the kind of world that you live in. And even Belsh- Belshazzar came into power uh, from a, a twisted history. Belshazzar's uh, father, Nabonidus, came into power because he, he was involved in the assassination of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who was the rightful heir to the throne. And then Nabonidus, his father, marries the daughter of Pharaoh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, in order to tie into the family line. That's, that's the history that Belshazzar has. My, my father was involved in assassination and married the, the nephew of the person that he murdered in order to get into the family line. It's a nation of beasts. And Daniel was reminded that's the nation that you you live in. And you know what, Daniel? It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, "The, The first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. 
This first beast shouldn't be hard to figure out. It's a clear reference to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was humble to the ground. And after his humility, he was made to stand on two feet like a man, and his mind was given back to him. But why was this, uh, why was the, there the picture of a lion with eagle's wings? That was actually one of the ways that Babylon represented itself as, as a lion with, with eagle's wings. Actually, uh, in excavations of Babylon, uh, they've actually unearthed uh, these statues of lions with wings. You know, that was part of how Babylon represented itself. And along the, the, the paved uh, street, the, the walls that were alongside of the, the main street that went through Babylon, the, the walls were glazed with pictures of lions, featured lions among other animals. The lion was the king of the jungle. The eagle was the king of the skies. And Babylon takes both. You know, we're, we're, we're the king. We're the ones who are in charge. We're, we're, we're the, the ones who are the, the pre, 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 preeminent ones among the earth. Jeremiah 4, 7 pictures Babylon as a lion coming out of the thicket. Jeremiah 4, 7. Jeremiah 49, verse 22 pictures Babylon as an eagle that swoops down upon its prey. Babylon was a, a powerful conquering beast. And even though Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, Babylon didn't stop being beastly. Even though for a period of time it was a a tame beast, it was still a beast. And that's what Daniel is reminded of. And after Babylon, there came another beast. Look at verse 5. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear, it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. And historically, the kingdom that followed Babylon was the Medo-Persian kingdom. Chapter 5 and verse 28, the the kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And it makes sense that this bear is lopsided because the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was lopsided. Cyrus was the king responsible for bringing uh, uh, the Medes and the Persians together, uh, had a a father who was uh, from Persia, a mother who was from uh, Media, and he he brought these two kingdoms together. uh, But Persia always remained the stronger of the two kingdoms. It all fits. It all fits. But why does it have three ribs in the mouth? What, what, what are these three ribs? These three ribs show the ferocity of the bear conquering its victims. The, 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 the bear was a carnivorous bear. It's told to arise, devour much meat, which is exactly what Medo-Persia did. Medo-Persia was responsible for conquering at least three major territories, which could represent these three ribs. Uh, the western section of Asia Minor, also known as Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. These three areas were conquered by Medo-Persia. It was able to take over far more land than any other kingdom prior to it. In Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 18, it says, uh, speaking about the Medo-Persian kingdom, uh, their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have a compassion, not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They, they, they were an incredible force and merciless terrifying. But as terrifying as they were, they were outmatched by the next beast in verse 6. Verse 6, back in uh, Daniel chapter 7, speaks about this, this third beast. It says, after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. The, the leopard was known for its great speed, uh, Habakkuk 1 and verse 8 speak about the, the speed of the, the leopard, and it was accelerated by these four wings. And we know that historically, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was followed by the Greek empire. 
And we know that from history, the Greeks conquered the Medes and the Persians in 331 uh, BC. And if anything characterized them, it was their incredible speed. Under Alexander the Great, they conquered all of the known world. And it's said that um, after Alexander conquered the world, that he sat down and he wept because there was nothing else to conquer. In his 20s, no more lands to conquer. It was just a swift takeover. Only 10 years, he conquered everything that could be conquered and never lost a battle. That's incredible to think about. After his death at the age of 33, his empire was split into how many parts? Four parts. (laughs) Four parts. His generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus, four generals. And how many heads does the leopard have? Four heads. Four heads. It's It's incredible. (laughs) The, the attention to detail in this prophecy is absolutely amazing. It's so, so exact in its fulfillment. It's astonishing. And it gives evidence of the divine origin of the scripture. This is the, the word from the Lord. And you don't have to force the details to make it match. It just, it just falls right into place. We don't have to, to, to force the details. And if it hasn't happened yet, and this is just the way that we look at prophecy, if it hasn't happened yet in the past, then it will happen in the future. That's the expectation. That's exactly how we're to understand prophecy, which is going to help us tremendously as we get to the next part of this vision in verses 7 and 8. He says, After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. What's clear about this prophecy is that it's referring to the Roman Empire, the fourth beast in history. And we know that Rome conquered Greece in 146 BC. They became the dominant world power for over 500 years in the West and about 1,500 years in the East. The Eastern Kingdom only faded away in 1453, which is incredible for world power. Most nations don't last longer than 200 years. They lasted the longest out of any of the kingdoms represented. Strongest metals that were part of this kingdom uh, represented in Daniel chapter 2. Out of all the metals that Rome was known for, it was known for its iron. Their armies were known as the Iron Armies. They were outfitted in iron armor, helmets, shields, swords. Rome was said to rule with an iron fist. And in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7, it speaks about the the beast and what kind of teeth does it have? Iron teeth. Iron teeth. Large iron teeth. It devours, it crushes, it tramples. All points to the shattering power of Rome. Crushed all that preceded it. Swallowed up the lands, the peoples. This is what Rome was. And they had the most powerful and longest lasting kingdom of all the other kingdoms. Rome was the beast that defied description. It it can't even give it an animal. It's not like the lion, the bear, the the leopard. It's just just the beast. Like there's, there's nothing that you can attach to it that really describes just how it sprawled out among, you know, uh, uh, among the nations. This, there's, there's nothing that I can put to this. Rome was the beast that defied the descriptions and it was unique among the world powers, so much so that the culture, the laws, and even the architecture remain until today. 
if you drive down in D.C. sometime and look at the buildings, so many of those buildings are imitations of what we find in Rome. The power of Rome and the influence of Rome is clear. What's not so clear is what we find in the next verse, in verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. We're not going to cover that today, okay? We will get more into that next time we're together. But this is a part of the prophecy that is of particular interest to Daniel. Daniel wants to understand what this is. This is what he's drawn to. What This last final nation, there's something that's different about this last nation. If you look down in verse 19, it says, Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And what else does he want to know? The meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Daniel understands that there's something significant about this final beast. I want to understand more about the details of that final beast. And like I said, we'll we'll get into that. But it's just, I'd say it's disappointing (laughs) that there are so many present day expositors that say, you know what? These details really don't matter. I was actually listening to, it was a great message. Listen to a great message uh, earlier on this week. So much of it was encouraging, but when the preacher got to these verses, he said, you know what? The details don't really matter. Then he also said the numbers that are used here, you know, the 10 and, you know, all these numbers, the three, the one corn. He says the numbers really aren't significant. The numbers are fluid. You know, it doesn't have to be 10. It doesn't have to be three. It doesn't. It's like the numbers are fluid. Everywhere else that you look in the prophecy, it's like, no, there's four empires and there's two sides to the empire, the Medes and the Persians. I mean, every other number matters. But then when you get to this, because you can't find a place to place it in history, now all of a sudden those numbers don't matter. Those numbers aren't really that important, which is baffling to me. Like, why why would the Lord be so exact and so precise and so detailed if the details didn't matter? And why would we have so many precise fulfillments where the details naturally fall into place just to abandon those same details in the end, why, why would you abandon the details? That, it doesn't make sense. And in the same way that we look at the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, and this is a great way uh, to think about this, the prophecies regarding Christ that haven't been fulfilled in his first coming, where do we expect those to be fulfilled? In his second coming. But we're expecting everything to be fulfilled. It's not like, well, we know what happened in the first coming, and what happens in the second coming it really doesn't matter. And we'll just kind of like drop the prophecies regarding the second coming because, well, we know what happens in the first. We don't know what happens in the second. So they must not really be that important. That's not what we do. If they haven't been fulfilled in the first, we expect them to be fulfilled in the second. In the same way as we look at this prophecy, whatever hasn't been fulfilled in the past, we look for it to be fulfilled in the future. That's the way that we're to understand prophecy. And you don't have to force the details to fit. It should be obvious. But let's quickly move on to what we should all be able to agree on. We'll get back to this later. 
But let's move on to what we should all be able to agree on, that there's a throne room in heaven that rules above it all, right? Look at verse 9. Verse 9. And we'll only briefly touch on this, but I don't want to leave you in you know, darkness and despair of just the beast. You have to keep looking because that's what Daniel does. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His vetcher was like the white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Daniel can't take his eyes off of this vision. Nine times in the chapter, it says, I kept looking and I kept looking and I kept looking. It's just riveting. I, I can't take my eyes off of this. And he looks until he sees these thrones that were set up. And it's obvious that the throne is also a courtroom because the court sat and the books were opened and the king is also the judge and he will silence forever the blasphemous mouth of the beast. And in great contrast to the tumultuous disorder of the sea, there is order in the court. There's order in the court. And in contrast to the empires that come and go, there's a kingdom that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And the ancient of days is reigning over it. And in contrast to the beast who arise from the depths of the sea, this throne comes down from heaven and the judge takes his seat. His vesture was like white snow, it says in verse 9, speaks of his purity. The hair of his head like pure wool, which speaks of his eternality. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire, which speaks of his righteous judgment. And the river of fire that flows before him is the same flame that will destroy the enemy. Look at verse 10. It says, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him, the heavenly witnesses. The court sat, the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. That's a picture of judgment. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now what this beast who is slain, what is this beast? Who is this beast? It's a picture of the beast that ruled the nations, right? All the other beasts were the ones that ruled the nations. This is talking about those that come up from the earth, that rule over the earth. Those that devoured and crushed and trampled down men. But these beasts will one day be destroyed. The beasts that rule over men will one day be destroyed. And the question is, is who's going to rule us now? Who's going to rule us? All the, the beasts have been taken out. All the empires of the world have been taken out. Who's going to rule us now? You need to keep looking. Look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. <laughs> the beast was taken care of and the son of man comes. Came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And we have so much to cover in this text. Like I said, this is all introduction, but it's all so riveting. Daniel says, I can't, I can't take my eyes off of this. 
And in one sense, it's so encouraging to know how the story ends, isn't it? We, we know how this story ends. The most high God is the ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's, that's the story. Heaven rules. And one day we will see the beasts of this earth, the kingdoms of this earth removed and the son of man will take his rightful place. That's encouraging news. But Daniel had a very different response to this vision. And I think this is often overlooked. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And you might say, well, that's, that's just because he didn't have an explanation for it yet. Actually, he receives an explanation. He goes to one of those who was in attendance and asks for an interpretation of these things in verse 16. So he receives a meaning. And then in verse 28, look at what he still says. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Why would, why would Daniel respond in this way? After seeing the, this great vision, why would Daniel respond in distress and alarm after the explanation of the vision? Think about the context. Think about the context. Like I said, Daniel might have been originally encouraged when the king promoted him, gave him great gifts, set him up as the second in command. Maybe he thought, you know, I'm finally going to be able to make a change. Maybe he thought, you know, I've got the king's attention. I can speak directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe I can prevent him from becoming a beast. But that didn't happen. Maybe Daniel had a ray of hope when Nebuchadnezzar was regenerated and thought that surely this means that there's going to be a new day. The leader of the most powerful nation in the world is a worshiper of God. You know, what a friend we have in office. All our sins and griefs to bear. Surely this is the way. We've got a friend in high places. But Nebuchadnezzar dies and they're still in captivity. Daniel's forgotten. And then what does he learn? He learns while he's in captivity that Jeremiah predicted that the captivity would only last for 70 years, right? Surely we're going to be able to enter into joy after we escape captivity. You know, I'm so glad trouble don't last always, you know? Going to get out of captivity. We're going to get back to the land. But then he receives this vision. And what does the vision communicate? After the beast of Babylon, there's going to come another. That's more terrifying than Babylon. Then after that beast, there's going to come another beast. That's more terrifying than the previous beast. And after that beast, there's going to come another beast that I can't even describe to you. It's exceedingly terrible. More terrifying than anything that came before. And then following that, there's going to be these ten horns and another horn that rises up among the, the three that pushes the three out and becomes prominent and rules over the all, over all. And, and it speaks these boastful things against the Lord. Daniel, if, if you thought that you were looking at the end, I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that the end isn't coming yet. The return from exile is not going to be your solution, Daniel. Daniel, you can have believers in the highest offices of the lands, and it's not going to change anything. Joseph rose to power in Egypt, second in command. Did that stop Egypt from becoming a beast? It's still a beast. Daniel rose to power, second in command in Babylon, but Babylon was still a beast. Nebuchadnezzar even converted 
Became a worshiper of God. But Babylon still remained a beast. In Persia, Esther chapter 10 and verse 3, Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. Remember that? Great among the Jews in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. But how does Daniel describe Persia? Persia is still a beast. You know what, Daniel? You're not going to be able to bring the kingdom this way. We have examples after examples. And it was distressing for Daniel to discover that these troubles are just the beginning. It's just the beginning of troubles. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. What's the hope in all this? We, we can't bring the kingdom from the bottom up. That's, that's not the hope. The hope is not to bring the kingdom from the bottom up. The, the hope is that the kingdom will come from the top down. That's, that's the hope. We can't change the beast into something other than a beast. You understand that? We, we cannot change it into something other than what it is. Now, that's not to say that if you're a Daniel and you get into a position of, of high influence, that you use it for all that you can. You, I mean, Daniel worked harder than the people who were born Babylonians. No, you serve faithfully. You honor the Lord with whatever the Lord has given you to do. You work with all your might as unto the Lord and not unto men. If you get into a position, you use that position for the glory of God. But do not think for a moment that if I just get into the right position, that I'm going to be able to change everything. No, the nation is still a beast. So many people think that, you know, if we could only, you know, get the right people in the right office in the right position, we can turn this nation around. And America's finally going to become a Christian nation. I've got news for you. America is still a beast. It's still a beast. Now, that's not to discourage you. That's to try to set you on the right trajectory. What, what, is, my, what is my role here? My role is to be a light, to be salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's where I live. But the darker the night, the brighter the light. We have an opportunity here, don't we? We have an opportunity, but the the opportunity that's been offered to us is not to try to change the nation into something other than a beast because it's not going to come from the bottom up. It's got to come from the top down. The only hope comes from heaven. Daniel seven thirteen. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Glory, kingdom, peoples, nations, men of every language are going to serve Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive. He's our king. And when the king comes down... We receive the kingdom. We don't bring it in. We don't vote it in. We don't wrestle it down. We receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And that's good news in troubling times, isn't it? We're going to receive the kingdom. But it's when our king brings it down. That's why we pray, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you bring the kingdom down? That's what our prayer is. Bring the kingdom down. Your kingdom come. And we will receive it. And that was Daniel's hope, that he would one day receive the kingdom. But it was discouraging for him to learn that the kingdom's not coming yet. It's not coming yet. The story is told of a missionary returning to the United States in the days when all overseas travel was by ship. And he found himself arriving in the New York Harbor in the same vessel as an acclaimed national figure. And crowds were waiting at the landing dock to greet this figure. And the missionary could not help but feel the contrast. He had been laboring for the treasure that does not perish, pouring his life's blood into sowing the seed of the gospel. And as he scanned the faces on the dock, he realized that no one was there to welcome him home. And as he began to submerge in a wave of self-pity, he realized the truth as clearly as if a voice had spoken to him from heaven. Do not be discouraged. You have not yet reached home. And this is the perspective that Daniel gives us. Don't be discouraged. You have not yet reached home. The kingdom is still to come. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And uh, Father, we're so grateful for this text. Uh, Father, there's so much more to learn. Uh, Lord, it's exciting uh, to to walk through these things. And uh, difficult and challenging, Lord. But I I pray that we've uh, kept the big picture in mind. Uh, Father, that uh, these four... Beasts represented four kings, kingdoms, empires. Uh, But this son of man would come and bring the kingdom. And then those who belong to him would receive that kingdom. And that's the kingdom that belongs to us. And Father, we're grateful that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that one day we will be home. And Father, we look forward uh, to that time. And we pray that uh, you would uh, help us to be faithful with where you've placed us uh, for your glory and that we would be aimed at the, the right ends. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.